there. Welcome to the Ashtanga Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Peg Mulqueen. I cannot believe that it's been a whole year since we released an episode. I mean, I knew at the beginning of this year that the podcast and even social media would have to take a back seat as we launched our mentorship program. I wanted to devote myself fully, thoroughly towards developing those relationships. And I have to tell you, it's been one of the most rewarding and life-changing endeavors that, that I've ever been a part of. And so as we expand the program for 2024, I admit I'm not sure how many new episodes I'm likely to record, but here's what I can promise you. The ones that we do release, the ones that I do record and share with you, they will mean something definitely to us and hopefully to you too. Now, you'll notice that I'm saying we, but Megan is not actually joining me here on the podcast this go around and probably not much in the future either. Podcasting isn't her thing. It doesn't feel authentic for her. Not in the way that mentoring and teaching and developing our coursework for the path does. And as bummed as I am not to have her here, good on her for saying no for honoring her own truth, even if that means disappointing her dear old mom, which I'm not, by the way, disappointed. It makes me kind of proud, actually. I mean, isn't that really why we practice yoga? To better know ourselves and better honor that knowing. This is really the conversation that I had with Jean Byrne, Jean is the co-founder of the yoga space along with her partner, Rob, in Perth, Australia. Jean has a PhD in Eastern philosophy and feminist theory and is about to start her master's in clinical psychology. She's also the mom of two boys and teacher to one of our mentees this year. In fact, it was her student that really inspired me to reach out to Jean. You see, in our mentorship, students are encouraged to really take ownership of their practice. So that means exploring variations and, ad and adaptations, especially when something's not working, and to make conscious decisions that honor their body and circumstances, which I think, which I know is very sensible and the way yoga asana should be taught. And yet I'm aware, and I'm sure you're aware, that not all Mysore rooms allow for this kind of self-discovery and agency. In fact, some, some would even take issue with it. And so I usually suggest that this type of discovery be reserved for home practice, especially in rooms with a more rigid understanding of tradition. Now, when I would say this little disclaimer, most of the group would nod knowingly, you know, except, except for Jean's student. Her only experience was more of the same of what we were offering. You know, what she practices at Yoga Space and how has always been her decision. Which isn't to say that she hasn't been guided or taught. Of course she has. 
Teachers in the Mysore room there give input and support, but what they don't do is make decisions for you. As you'll hear Jean say in the podcast, it's their body, and so a student should have final say. God, I wish this was not such a radical perspective, but I'm afraid in my experience, it kind of is. Now, maybe that's because many teachers fear giving up that power. Maybe. I don't always think it's for egotistical reasons, though. Sometimes it is, for sure. But in a lot of cases, I think it's just this misguided effort to keep students safe. Whatever the reason, finding a Mysore room that has loosened the hierarchical proverbial reins, giving power and responsibility back to the students, it just seemed too good a thing not to explore further. So I reached out to Jean to discuss the whys and hows of these shifts that she's made. And as you'll hear, it all began with a crisis of faith. From shattered illusions and broken beliefs rose a determination in Jean to be different, to do different, to honor truth over power, intuition rather than rules, and follow her own inner wisdom. And this is what she teaches and allows her students to do also. Meet the formidable and also incredibly down-to-earth, Dr. Jean Byrne. Jean, thank you for joining me today. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. You're in Perth. I'm in Perth, the most geographically isolated city in the world. Yeah, and it's beautiful. When did you move there? Just curious. We, right before COVID, we moved up to the hills. And in fact, all kind of, I think we'll talk about this stuff today. We had a little bit of crisis of faith years ago in practice and life and Guru Shishya and what was next. And we found ourselves in this national park all the time, just kind of communing with nature and just trying to be grounded and and then eventually my partner, Rob, who also runs the yoga space with me, was like, let's move here. And so we did. Yeah. So we live a bit out of the city right near the, you know, to a state forest and a national forest right nearby. And it's really perfect. Yeah. You said crisis of faith. Can you, can you talk about that a little? I don't, I don't mean to jump right into it, but that. Yeah. You know, life has its ebbs and flows and. At different stages of life, particularly I'm getting closer to 50, things can get quite difficult. And in one of those phases, we were facing a lot of difficulties with one of our children. It wasn't long after um, Me Too hit the Ashtanga community and we, you know, deauthorized ourselves and stepped back, even though, you know, we we love the practice and teaching. And I think we were at a kind of impasse. We something needed to shift. And I think we found ourselves just really when we're in the natural world and I practice outside of my deck these days, just feeling connected and free and kind of reassured. Like when we sit on these rocks that are millions of years old and for us here, it's, you know, it's Wajak country, which is the kind of first nations owners of this land. And 
we just felt reassured. So there was a, there's a reassuring nature of trees that have seen so much more than you and rocks that have kind of out, outlasted you. I think you know all about that with where you live as well. Do there's just such a I feel so held and mm. I feel more like me. You know, I I took a course, I don't want to veer off on this, but I took a course recently on land and belonging and mm. talking about mm. how where we live reflects us mm. and we are reflected in the land and looking at the places you choose to live as yeah manifestations of you like it's not just mm -hmm. this is a place I live or this is mm -hmm. you know it's it's really home and home isn't just the physical abode but the actual geology and landscape in which you live and I thought gosh I see the mountains and I know I'm home I know I feel mm -hmm. I feel this huge exhale I feel just so much like me and you're right it gives you this sense of um belonging and mm. beyond the ashanga world beyond <laughs> you know social yeah. media and communities like this real sense of roots oh i i knew this was going to happen when we did this podcast we had a nice big chat and i knew that we were kind of just going to really bounce off each other because that word belonging um obviously I'm you know as you know I'm a researcher and so I'm quite interested in uh, mind-body interventions and mental health that's a lot of what the research is that I do over here and I design interventions and that include yoga and meditation and yoga nidra all these things but what I notice is missing in kind of healthcare is this sense of belonging or community but more specifically related to practice and perhaps even the Ashtanga practice, particularly the beauty of a Mysore practice or Mysore room, that self-practice, is what I notice over time. And I think that impasse, that little bit of crisis of faith, was a little bit of a shift from belonging to a tradition. And, you know, we were those people. We'd gone to Mysore 12 times. We'd spent years there. We'd you know, our son has been six times, our eldest with us. And we felt a real belonging in that tradition. And there was an impasse and a kind of growth and a time where we needed to begin to belong to ourselves. And I think belonging both at a kind of structural and systemic societal level is like loneliness is just endemic and it's so bad for our health. And at the same time, particularly as we mature, and I see this with a lot of women, there's a certain point where we need to belong to ourselves. Do you get what I mean? Ew. Mm. Yeah. You clearly made other shifts other than just to move. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, because I know this because this is kind of why I did reach out to you was I, I happened to meet one of your students and little by little, she would tell us different things that how your Mysore room was and about her teacher. And it was so unique and beautiful and everything you kind of hope for and dream of in, in a yoga room. And 
and sadly so rare that when you said that sense of belonging, um, she was expressed, I'll let you speak because she was expressing this sense of like, oh, autonomy. And mm. uh, there would be no, we would, you know, sometimes we'll say, oh, well, maybe you could try this, you know, and see if it works, but not probably in the room because teachers don't usually like that. And she said, oh no, oh no, I can like, that's not a problem. And yeah, it was, it was kind of neat. So I was really intrigued. And so I asked more questions and learned more. And I'd really love to use, speak to this because, and, and also I, I'm imagining that the way you teach now isn't the way you've always taught, I would think, but I might be wrong, but I would love to hear what shifts and changes you made with that, you know, crisis of faith and, and what you're doing now. And explain a little bit what you're doing now, because this is where I got really inspired. It's so um, it's so interesting to hear that. And to be honest, it's really reassuring and it helps remind us that we are on the right track. And yeah, you're right. We, we didn't, and I'm talking we as in my um, partner, Rob, he's a clinical psychologist and researcher as well. And he's actually just, he's in and out of the MISOL program with kids and there's some other teachers at Yoga Space as well um, who are amazing. So, no, we didn't always teach like that. However, we always taught beyond Ashtanga Yoga. So we came to Ashtanga Yoga with, you know, years of Zazen and Vipassana meditation practice. And there was really a, a quite a different container there. So particularly because for us, we were never, you know, physically talented. We could spend six months in Mysore, but we were never, I mean, we we're getting into all the grabbing and all that sort of jazz, but it, it hurt us. Like it wasn't good for us. We weren't those people who could pull it off long-term. And so when we first began teaching Mysore style, we'd been already teaching a long time. We'd been teaching about 10 years. And there was a sense that we had a real reverence for the tradition. And of course, we didn't know everything that had come before us. We obviously had practiced with Atabi Joyce, but Sharat was really the boss. And that's who we started with in a small room with Sharat. And Sharat's a very respectful teacher. And so we we had this little bit of intensity around it. Like we really believed in what we were doing. We really believed in that Guru Shishya tradition, even though in Ashtanga, the Guru Shishya tradition, it doesn't really date back very far, thousands of years or anything like that. It's quite a recent phenomenon. Yet there was always room for flexibility. So what we were always interested in is the reasoning. And when we train teachers as well, we're always interested in the why. Like, why do you want to do that? Why are you teaching like that? Why that sequence? Why that, this, there, or now? And so, yeah, we were a little bit more rigid when we were younger. And I think that was out of respect to our teachers, um, which was Patabi Joyce and Sharat. And because that's what they kind of wanted. But at a certain point, um, obviously, when Me Too hit the Ashtanga community, there was a big shift for us um, in the way that we understood the tradition. And also, it was kind of liberating for us. You know, we, we still really do appreciate the form of Ashtanga yoga. And there's this beautiful quote, I think it's in Mahayana Buddhism from the Heart Sutra, that form is emptiness and emptiness is form. The form or the container of the Ashtanga practice is profound. And I'm not that person who believes that 
you know, there's a real logic to the way the sequence is set up. I, I think that would be disputed by a lot of people, but there's a real uh, magic to the kind of commitment. And now as a researcher, I know that yoga works on dose as well. And so Ashtanga really sets people up to have that steady practice and have see those changes occur through that. But yes, when we kind of had that crisis of faith and it wasn't just in the how Me Too played out in the Ashtanga community. I think that was some of the biggest difficulties for us. But it was also, you know, we started teaching and practicing pre-Instagram and the world was a very different place there. So I think that even how yoga is understood, we were having a crisis of faith about that. But whether we were really going to continue teaching actually in this new era where everything's got the bells and whistles and we were unsure about that so yeah we shifted how we taught quite a bit actually and some people didn't like it at that point <laughs> you know we had a massive exodus of staff and students but um we were fortunate because we have you know an education we did have we've always had other work so we could really just abide in what we feel is important in our teaching and not ever really feel compromised in what we have to do in order to put a roof over our head. And that that's a privilege for us as well. When you say you had an exodus, talk to me about why, what shifts were problematic for others and why do you think that was? When change happens, there's a lot of fear and a lot of dialogue is required and I think in the world generally and in yoga rooms, it's difficult for people to hold multiple truths that, for example, the practice is empowering and beautiful for so many people worldwide. It's, you know, people who have PTSD and complex trauma and many of us students have had childhood trauma. And at the same time, there's been abuses and that you know, there is this really strong encouragement in the tradition to be part of this guru shishya thing that's going down and to step out of that and say, well, I'm pretty, you know, you, you do mature in your relationship with your teacher. And at a certain point, if you're in a hierarchical relationship and there's no space there for you to kind of become equals, like, you know, you grow, you get older, you have experience and wisdom as well. So I think the democratization of the practice is uncomfortable for people, particularly if they have positions of power that they do want to hold on to. And sometimes that is financial and I do understand that. And other times it's just ego, really. So, yeah, we changed consent cards, you know, or we just went full autonomy. What do you want to do with your practice? You know, you want more postures? Tell me why. You know, I'm, I'm not the per I don't get to choose your body, your choice. What do you want to do? This is my opinion, whether I think you should do that or not do that. And, you know, also understand we are in a room full of other people as well, and we need to respect their practice and their journey. So how do we respect that form? While also understanding it's somewhat inherently empty. And... You know, there's this beautiful quote by, I think, the poet David White, who says, you know, the world was made to be free in. We just don't need the Mysore room to be another site of oppression or silencing. And I do think people need to make their own mistakes. 
So we stepped back and we did it quite firmly. And I understand that's difficult when thing when people change tack like that. Yeah. I love that you said let people make their own mistakes. Because mm-hmm. if you think yeah. like what lessons have you learned that have been the most profound, right? Like the, 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 those, those lessons that come that you really grew from, it most likely wasn't because somebody told it to you, right? It was like something you maybe you struggled with, that you grappled with, that you sat with, that caused you angst and that you worked through and came with this insight, this, this wisdom that I don't think you can get another way. And, and often, and so if we're always telling people, and I think we're, you know, for a long time, I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of it too. I do those asana tutorials and, you know, give people like, this is how, or this is how, you know, and give them different options. And it's great, but it's all, but there comes a time when actually it's really good to go. Well, what do you think? You know what I mean? Like, Mm. you know, or watch the way somebody moves before you tell them how to move. And let people kind of make those discoveries. I just think we rob students of that lovely experience. And in a way, I mean, that's the way I learned a lot. Been a home practitioner for nearly most, you know, most of my life and just trying, you know, <laughs> trying mm. to figure things out. And then when I felt like I needed help reaching out to somebody that I thought might be able to, to give me some insight. But I love that. So why would I take that from someone else by telling them what to do or how to do it, even if it's good? And that's one of the things that the Ashtanga practice brings, I think, is in the the right context, it can bring about a really deep sense of self-responsibility. But it requires a teacher who is willing to not be the expert and that's a difficult place to hold as as a teacher that you want to provide a container and you probably have we all have clear ideas and passions and interests but allowing the student to really articulating and making it clear that they need to find their own way through this and you know as I get older, I less read the yoga texts. You know, my PhD was on Advaita Vedanta and feminist theory. And I was really passionate about yoga philosophy and Buddhist philosophy. And I still am, but I often turn to poetry now in the same way that I kind of turned to being in the natural world. And who is it? I think it's Mary Oliver. And she says something like, but little by little, you, you know, what is it? You leave their voices behind and then, you know, things get quiet and things get clear. And then the only voice that you can hear is your own. And for me, uh, when that kind of crisis of faith was happening, I noticed that I had my teacher's voices in my head. I mean, many years ago, it was Patabi Joyce's voice, but it was more Sharat because I'd spent so much time with Sharat. And, and you know, I love Sharat. Um I don't see him as my paramaguru or anything like that, but he, he's lo- a lovely person. For, um, and we all, you know, no person is perfect. But he was in my head, you know, for a year or two when I would practice. And I really needed, and I think as a woman going through perimenopause, and I even just think as a woman living in, you know, these structures, living in patriarchy, that I needed the voice in my head to be my own. 
because that was the only way to be truly free. And I think, you know, at the end of that poem by Mary Oliver, she she's talking about that, finding that voice so that she can move deeper and deeper into the world. And certainly for me, I've spent a lifetime having male teachers tell me what's what and, you know, and I think I told you I mentioned one of those stories to you. Should oh, I yeah. share that one? Oh, please do share. I yeah. mean, I don't I don't know if I can stomach hearing it again, but please do. Yeah. <laughs> Look, it, it's not that bad, but you know, as a as a teenager personally, I went through, you know, some some difficult times for a, for a number of years. And actually my practice or practice inverted commas began with psychedelics when I was a teen, which is completely irresponsible, but I've now come full circle as, as the adult in the room, um, undertaking psychedelic assisted therapy research here in Perth for chronic pain. But, you know, that really, I was re I really needed to know what was true. And so I started meditating at 17, started yoga. And so I'd been raised to find my voice. My parents were very uh, clear on that. But I remember being in a workshop and I won't name the teacher, but, you know, I was mentioning how when I menstruate, I don't practice in this way. And I do restorative yoga because I have period pain. And I was essentially told, and I hear this in Ashtanga a lot, that, you know, if you're practicing correctly, you wouldn't have period pain. And indeed, I've heard other women be told you wouldn't have a period, which is completely incorrect. And particularly given the rates of women with or, you know, people who menstruate with endometriosis and polysystemic or whatever it's called, PCOS, I made it very clear. I was like, well, no, because I need to practice like this because I do have pain and it's too much, too difficult to do that intensity of a sequence. And kind of started to turn into this little bit of a debate. And then one of the guys that was present said, but she menstruates. Why wouldn't you listen to her about what's happening, what she needs to do? And the teacher actually said something like, you know, would you believe a confused woman or your teacher? <laughs> and at that point, I actually walked out because from early on, I didn't really appreciate being told how I should be and how my body should be. And Indeed, I'm quite grateful because when I really got into Ashtanga at the beginning, it was with Rolf and Kirsten and these sort of teachers, people I don't know about as much anymore. They're not all over Instagram. They're not famous. But there was a freedom in their classes. They respected me. And obviously there was a form, but there was also choice. It's so sensible. And I'm not sure why... I even feel the need to continue to put out podcasts that keep saying the same thing, but this, this other idea still gets perpetuated that somehow if you stray or do things different, or we'll, we'll say out of one side of our mouth that we teach to the student and to the individual, but then on the other side of our mouth, we'll say, yeah, but you know, you have to do this, this, and this before you can go there. We still give out postures or take away postures or, you know, or, treat a woman in perimenopause the same way you would treat a, a student who comes in, you know, in their early twenties. It, it blows my mind that these things don't, that there aren't in place, that this isn't, this should not be unique. And I don't know. And I, I think this comes down to 
what we don't realize is a lot of what is unspoken. I mean, you realize this, many of us do, but you know, I didn't when I was younger, um, before I had psychology training, for example, that there's a lot that's unspoken in the Mysore room. And in yoga, we know these are some scaras and people are playing them out in the Mysore room. And when I teach people, when I help people apprentice in to, be, to teach Mysore, I say it very clearly, like you're going to notice transference and then counter-transference. And for a teacher, that counter-transference is when you feel triggered or where you, you know, people feel like their um, expertise is being questioned or something like that. And it's a moment where I remind people not to, to take action from that space. But I feel like the Mysore room, it's a real microcosm of the rest of our life. And I think that I'm not, there's no statistics on it, but I'd be interested to know and the kind of people that are drawn to a Mysore practice um, and also having a little kind of reflection on the way in which the mind is conditioned. Now, there's a lot of people who might talk about this in a yogic perspective, such as samskaras, but those samskaras in psychology, they're, they're understood as schemas and they're these patterns that have power over us and without kind of maturity of life experience, in that holding space, the teacher can perpetuate those schemas, um, those patterned ways of relating. And I think one of the, I mean, one of the difficult things as for me as a teacher is that when we first started teaching Mysore, and I say we with my partner, Rob, and we've been together, you know, I don't know, 26 years or something, 24 and there was quite a bit of parentification because it was a kind of, you know, very easy to project that mummy daddy vibe when you have a, um, uh, you know, a woman and a man in the room. And we have always had a range of Mysore teachers. So we have avoided at yoga space having one teacher because I do feel like the Mysore room becomes a cult of personality and People are showing up for the teacher rather than showing up for themselves. And their autonomy, sometimes it's a little bit easier to have that autonomy when there's not the same person five days a week because you need to take ownership over your practice then, even though the teachers communicate day to day. And I don't think we always know what we're playing out like the internal dramas that we're playing out with our teachers there's so much that happens in the Mysore room and often I tell the story um you know we do a general teacher training not an Ashtanga one where people go out into not-for-profits and they're you know they're at psychiatric inpatient units and people are screaming and they're at aged care facilities and people have dementia and they're just doing whatever they want or you know they're they're in prisons all sorts of places they're teaching and it's this notion that you just need to roll with it. Like you, you, you come, you offer what you can offer and what you can on that day and you be reflective about it. But I remember in the Mysore room once I actually had someone stand up and pick up their mat and throw like their yogi toes, throw it on the floor and sh shout, why does she get all the postures and I get none? <laughs> And, you know, by this, this, by this time, I'd been teaching a very long time. So I felt very sad. It was kind of funny, but obviously I didn't laugh. I felt it was very sad for her because she was absolutely suffering. And 
so I remember just thinking, wow, there's a lot going on here. And so it's about, can you have the conversation? So I just said, hey, you know, what, what's going on? Do you feel like you want more in your practice? What's happening for you? Um, everyone's different and that person has all of these different things. And I know it doesn't look like they've been practicing a long time. They've been practicing like 15 years. But if you want to do more, let's let's chat, let's talk about it. And I think for Ashtangis and particularly for anyone listening to this, I think a good test whether you're in the the right you or a place in which you can grow and evolve in the long term is what happens when you ask why you know when you ask why why are you suggesting I do that or why do you want me to do that or why do you keep saying that or why do you you want to see what your teacher says and it's a it's a great litmus test um for whether you're going to be able to grow and evolve in that in that relationship. What do you I think? I have always said that you just said too, key that that why question, we've always used that in two. I always say to people, if, if you, if I can't answer why, don't listen to me. Like I'm just saying it out of a book then. And I'm just saying it because somebody else said it or, or whatever. There needs to be reasons, but also we need to ask ourselves why, because why is that digging tool? And if we keep yeah. going, why, well, why we act like the little petulant two-year-old, why, how come, why? Yeah, yeah. And you get down to like these base root beliefs of what's driving us. Like, why do I want more postures? Why do I think that's mm. better? Why is deeper? Here's my new thing right now is why is deeper better? Why are we, I constantly get messages that says, well, if I do it like this, I get deeper and, and I want to get deeper because deeper is better. And, and, and it, the deeper and better is just um, really highlighted in, and it's something you said that there's some unspoken messages that are sent. And yeah, I think that's one of them that deeper, and I have no problem, but deeper is relative. Like exploring your mm -hmm. potential is relative. Bodies are different. And, you know, what may be deep for me in one way, Megan and I were giving an example with Supta Vajrasana, you know, I am postmenopausal. I am not catching my feet when I go and I don't even mm -hmm. do it unless she's here that's really mm -hmm. it but yeah for me just allowing me to have that little support with somebody and not catching and not forcing me to catch a hold but allowing me that freedom that openness is wonderful for her very flexible back young body she likes you know it actually would hurt to put too much slack in her body like that mm -hmm. that would be painful yeah. And this is why the navigation of Ashtanga needs to be, you know, the, the teacher needs to have a lot of experience and a lot of experience with the practice. And without going into too many details of the ins and outs of all of the techniques, for example, I made a decision at the same similar time to that crisis of faith that I was no longer going to pull my body into a position. So if I can't just put my foot in half lotus or if I can, and I can't or just put my leg behind my head without my hands, I was no longer going to pull into anything. I wanted only to do things where I had strength and control at my end range because my end range was way crazy, you know. I was that person who loved to drop in contortion class way over there, but my strength wasn't keeping up with it. And as we navigate our practice, as we age, um, as we go through perimenopause during pregnancy, if we're not in a container where 
we have the autonomy to to have the conversation and to we lose the self-responsibility and those questions of why are so important and what I suggest to people is that sometimes even the why it's conceptual at first but then it sinks down and it's it's an embodied knowing and this was what I think I learned from you know koan practice in zen that we're not always going to have the words, but we will have the felt sense. And sometimes when we're handing over our responsibility and letting someone else consistently tell us how and why, we need a little bit of space or a new context to actually tune into what's happening in in, in our body, um, which we don't always have the words for, but it's a felt experience. And learning to trust that takes mm. practice, yeah, right? And it takes practice and it. I think it also takes time and we need to, I believe, give ourselves permission and be sure that we're in a context in which we feel that permission. It's not just an intellectual, it's not just the words, but it's felt, it's a felt sense that there is a kind of democratization occurring, that there's a respect to the, the teacher or the guide or the holding space, yet at the same time, there is that capacity to find our own voice. So we don't have to play out those schemas, particularly for you know women or marginalised people in our world who you know, it's difficult. It's much more difficult to find your voice. You suggested something the other day when we were talking and it was about the almost fear of taking responsibility for mm. our practices. And there have been times in my life where I've yearned for that stamp, that validation, but I've always thought that actually operating outside of it has done me some good in the fact that I could never get comfortable. I could never just rely on that. It's tricky because, you know, a lot of our well-being or health is societally determined. And there's only maybe what, 35, 40% that's actually individual choice. And in the MISO room, we see this playing out as well because there's a lot of factors that come to bear on bodies, you know, race, religion, ethnicity, language, age, um, gender, sexuality, all of this happens within the within this body. And it, it the world impresses itself, kind of impacts on that body day to day. And it feels easier. And I think there's a place for it to just give over to a teacher. And I know that I did that for many years and it was helpful, but to teachers, I trusted, you know, I took time, Rolf and Kirsten or Sherat, teachers who I felt weren't dangerous to me. And I had a good radar for that because of the work I'd done due to things I'd experienced in my youth, where sometimes that radar is a little bit confused and it's difficult for people to trust themselves. But then at a certain point, we must take self-responsibility. 
that's that's the growth and maturity in the practice. No one is coming to save us. You know, they're not going to be there in the middle of the day when your kid triggers you or something's going on at work or, you know, you you have to decide, you have a referendum. How are you going to advocate for for people who, um, you know, have suffered under the harms of colonialism, how are you going to navigate all these decisions? And the practice can be the place from which you can move into the world and have a kind of an intimacy with the world. But at a certain point, only if you take that personal responsibility for yourself. Well, the cool thing about a Mysore room is, you're not doing it alone. Nobody's saying, no. you know, I mean, I was yeah. kind of on my own, but it, but it's not like, I mean, you, you can join with, you're there with, and, and like, I mean, I'd like to hope that that's the kind of parent I am, you know, that I mm. let my kids, you asked, you started off before we started recording and you said that it's hard having Megan so far <laughs> away. And yeah. it is, it's, and she, you know, yeah, of course it is. And I remember when she was deciding whether to go over and um, study with Dina or go to back to Mysore, or wh- which one was she going to choose? And she said, you know, mom, what do you think I should do? And I said, what do you think you should do? Like, wh- what would you like to do, <laughs> Leslie? And I just asked questions. And meanwhile, you know, of course, do I have my own would I love to have her close? Of course I would, you know, but at some point, like, then it's about, again, it becomes about me instead of about her. And the thing is, I figure by not telling her what to do, or even Mm -hmm. what I wanted her to do, it conveys confidence that I know she can make these decisions and I'm here and whatever it is, we'll be, you know, we'll, we'll figure all that out together. And you can do that as a teacher, not just, you know, as a parent, you do it, but as a teacher, you do it, right? Like I'm here. Yeah. And I used to be a school teacher as well. And I'm seeing it now because I've been teaching in Perth. I was in Brisbane before for 17 years here. And I'm seeing people cycling back through with kids who are 13 or 14 or 15. And I think there's a real beauty to having someone trust you. So when there's someone that you respect um, saying, you know, I I trust your decision-making in in your practice and there's a way in which you begin to trust yourself and it changes how you are in your life and in your relationships and in your world. And that's an interesting moment for me because, you know, I have these themes for for years, these questions I'm working with in my meditation practice. And I remember a long time ago, maybe two years ago, I was listening to a talk by Tara Brack and she said something around, you know, trusting in the universe. And I was like, wow, I don't trust in the universe. I don't actually trust in the benevolence of the universe. And I went on this journey through my meditation and through that year, particularly the living so connected to nature and thinking the universe is wild and it is free and it is beautiful and it is terrifying. And the universe is all of these things at once. So what can I do? What can I trust? And I can trust myself, begin to trust myself and, and how I am in the world and yeah yeah that's so trust I think is what what can we trust in when everything is 
shifting and it's the heart of Buddhist philosophy, um, the taking the responsibility. No one's going to do the work for you, right? No. When you were saying that about nature, I was thinking, but we are nature. I am terrifying Mm -hmm. and wild and benevolent and all of those things. And so by, you know, realizing that that's all part of us and it's part of our, our nature and our beauty. And when we learn to trust that within us, I've just wrote something about this, about imperfection in nature and, you know, our own and that it's beautiful. The crooked Mm -hmm. tree is gorgeous and learning to incorporate those so many times I watch somebody practice and and they practice with that sense of perfectionism and it becomes very mechanical and executionary, right? There's no like grace. And and even beyond even beyond the asana, the, there's a deep sense of spiritual materialism that can happen in communities. And I remember this in Buddhist communities I was part of and you know, getting your jhana states or just I think people are just so desperately want something to hold on to, whether it's a posture and everything changes. You know, that's it's a nietzsche in Buddhism. It's impermanence and or whether it's a state, you know, this mystical experience where you know the the eye comes back you know it kicks back in and those experiences aren't necessarily going to change how you are in relationship and a lot of work remains to be done and i think where sometimes we try you know in spiritual particularly in spiritual communities try to move away from the conventional and the day-to-day and this duality of we are in relationship and we're living with this solid sense of i in the world and we are all of these things. We're a multitude of, of feelings and emotions and experiences. But we also are hanging on to these kind of philosophical principles or these experiences that we've had in our practice of that kind of collapsing. And there's a discomfort with the full. And I know because we talk about politics a little bit at Yoga Space and we are engaged in social justice work in terms of breaking down barriers to access to yoga there's a real discomfort with this multitude that happens within us. And I think in our society, I've experienced and I've spoken to many women, um, there's particularly with women and angry women. And I mean, I don't want to get into America's politics, but there's every reason for women and trans and non-binary and all sorts of people in America to be, to be angry. And how can we channel that emotion without kind of somehow making it not part of us, right? Talk to me more about that. I, it's the unwillingness, I think, for us to accept that multitude within us, that we are, that we are so much, <laughs> there's so much that occurs within, within the person. And you know, we talked about perimenopause a little bit before we came into this. And for me, at least, you know, as a woman and my family laughs, because I'm always saying as a woman and as a cisgender woman as well, I should be clear that the world kind of impacts on me in a very different way to say if I was a First Nations person or if I was, um, you know, a man, a white man. And there's changes which occur. And through that, I think we can turn in on ourselves or 
we can begin to allow whatever it is that we are feeling to be there rather than shutting it down and channel that into constructing new ways. Like you're saying, in our Mysore room, we changed what we were doing. Or in my family life, I kind of embraced that fluctuating rage of perimenopause. I didn't get angry at people, but I got clear. I got clear boundaries. I was very, very clear. And I think that there's a discomfort in spiritual communities and with emotion. And particularly when you look at my PhD, address this, you know, conventional and ultimate truth. There's this notion of, you know, whether you look at Advaita Vedanta or any sort of tradition which has some sort of transcendence, there's this a sense that this is where you go and this is where you dwell. And it's like, well, actually you have a body and you're in the world and most of you need to work and be in relationship. And so what's the bridge when you have these profound experiences? Um you know, and essentially I find it's, you know, it's me, 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 all the patterns, all the schemas, all some scars. And then for a, for a moment, there's, there is no I, there's no one creating the story. There's just pure experience. But then the I kicks back in and creates a story around it. But the story that's not created is what, how now do I be in relationship? How do I help the world that I live in? How do I create change, both individual and structural systemic change what what is my part in this and so the spiritual teachings and this is why I love the Gita are important because they help us to be in the world and you know find our dharma and do it all out and that means that there's going to be a lot of emotion that we get to channel into positive constructive change both in our relationships and our mysore rooms and the world hopefully what do you think i'm listening to you and i'm thinking to myself and we thought deciding whether you're going to get on the next posture was a tough decision and taking responsibility <laughs> but is it that sort of preparing you for a much bigger decisions of what part we'll play greater responsibilities of the role that we will take moving forward I was thinking that's great practice you know what I mean like mm, yeah we got to get used to making those kinds of taking those honorable risks if we can take them on a yoga mat you know I mean I struggle like it, it's hard to know those aren't clear what to do no. um and there's no there's no right or wrong way in the same way there's no right real right or wrong way the posture expresses itself in each person differently and people's expression of their work in the world is really different but in the posture we bring breath we learn to regulate and I love polyvagal theory we find those moments of embracing the multitudes the resistance the desire the wanting the release the relinquishing the yielding the presence we we are a multitude in that moment and the posture gives us that opportunity and hopefully if we can drop a little bit of the striving then we can experience the multitude of the world and and we can hold multiple truths particularly with everything that's happening in the world right now um we can begin to enter into dialogue in a way that's constructive with ourselves and our practice with our partners with our children and yeah, however we do the work in, in the world. And maybe that's just our Mysore teaching or maybe it's our job or small ways and big ways. I think it's different for everyone, right? 
I definitely do. And I, yeah, I mean, and I, and I love that how you brought even rage into it because mm-hmm. that's such an uncomfortable emotion mm-hmm. that especially uh, for women as a woman. I cracked it two years ago on Christmas morning after I'd, no, three years ago, I'd done all this stuff. I was like, people were, kids were being grumpy. And I was like, I'm done. I'm going to go practice. And I remember I was like, I walked out, went down to my room to practice crying. And then I was like, oh, well, this is me. This is what I want on Christmas. And I'm allowed to have what I want. And then I had a beautiful rest of the day. But yeah, I I embraced it. I tried not to externalize it. It's just a simple way in family life. But it, you know, it's okay to feel it and to make constructive decisions based on it. I remember after Roe v. Wade was overturned, I I know. So sorry. I took up running. I took up running. I was so angry. I just needed to run, to pound pavement. I wanted to feel my body and I wanted to feel the pain of the running. I felt that rage and wasn't going to bring it on my yoga mat, but I was going to hit it on the dirt road. And it was therapeutic. And I think it was like, it was a different way of expressing that rage. It was a, a very physical, visceral pumping. And, yeah. and it, it did allow for some of that to be processed and physically processed, somatically processed. And, and with trauma or these sort yeah. of really intense experiences, yoga is not the first go-to, you know, like, when things have been really hard for me, I'll sometimes put on music and I'll dance or I'll have a walk in nature. I'll move my body in a very different way so that I can then come back down. And if you think about, if you're listening, go Google the polyvagal ladder, because if you think about how you're moving around that polyvagal ladder, um, we can't just go from super activated to hugely down-regulating our nervous system. Like you're saying, sometimes at different points, obviously you still practice consistently and so did I, but there's, it needs to be another way in. And isn't that beautiful that we have different tools, different ways to use our body, to express ourselves, as you said, even to be active in the world. I mean, And the yoga tradition offers us that. And when we run teacher training, it's over 12 months because we say at some point, people have to practice five days a week. You can't do a strong ashtanga or a vinyasa or you can't do a strong practice. You're going to get divorced or pregnant or sick or stressed. And then you have to figure out, well, what else? You know, what about your, and I'm a big fan of yoga nidra. What about a yoga nidra or pranayama or meditation? Where can these practices come in or restorative yoga to support you because if we can't find the way through in our own practice it's very difficult to help other people when they're struggling and you know an ashtanga sequence is not really appropriate um, to help them find the way through oh thank you jean thanks for joining me this was like lovely it was a real pleasure it's really been nice talking Thanks for listening. And if you're interested in joining our mentorship program for 2024, the application is now on our website. 
we would love the chance to know you better and walk with you on this journey. Next year on The Path, which is our virtual learning community, we're going to focus on the Yoga Sutras, taking a very practical look at how this age-old philosophy applies to our modern-day life. The year will be broken down in chapters, beginning in January with Chapter 1. You can find more details on this and all our offerings by visiting ashtangadispatch.com. Thanks again for listening.